This is Paul Axton, and I wanted to point you to our new Patreon page that we do have various levels that you can support, and that as a member, then you can receive benefits through the various levels. We do appreciate any support you might give, as we are a donation-based ministry. In this podcast, Matt Welch, Jonathan Toddy, and I discuss the recent work of David Bentley Hart that all shall be saved, heaven, hell, and universal salvation. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Today I am here with John Toddy. And John, tell us where you're located. I am an associate priest at the Episcopal Church of the Annunciation in Louisville, Texas. And Matt is, I know, over there in that other state. Yep, I'm in Indianapolis, and uh, I'm profoundly anti-clerical, John, so just so you know. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. That's a joke. Kick rocks at priests, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. No, I, we're, you know, we're all friends, and it's, I love getting on, uh, having a conversation with you guys, especially about today's topic. And um, I, I work with... Uh, uh, helping guys to get free uh, of their addictions uh, at a local Christian discipleship program here um, just outside of Indianapolis called Trinity Life Ministry. Let's rely on Matt to guide us through a summary. So I, I guess for me, you know, uh, Hart in his book and really in all of his work, he's fond of saying something like the, the God of in whom the majority of Christians throughout history have professed belief appears to be evil one of his more sort of provocative remarks, but I think he wants to zero in on that as it, as it uh, manifests itself in the theology of an eternal conscious torment. So in his latest book, That All Shall Be Saved, that I think is the target of the book, is, is sort of a critique of the eternal conscious torment position. And so I guess Hart wants to just answer the question, will the omnipotent God of love who creates the world from nothing, either impose or tolerate the eternal torment of the damned. So I think if we can maybe narrow the discussion there, you know, I think that really is kind of the, the, the scope. I mean, whether or not we, we'd hope that Hart would deal more with annihilation or those other sort of options, I think in this particular work, he really has his target as eternal conscious torment. And I really like, to me, I think that Hart's position can be summed up pretty clearly in two different ways. And the first one is, is that if God is willing and able to bring all things to a good end, then he will. To not do so would demonstrate that he's either incompetent or evil, right? That is, that if God is willing, and I think from the scriptures that we can deduce that he is to save, to bring all things to a good end, and that he's able, and of course we would um, argue and say, well, God is omnipotent and he is able to to bring to pass that which he wants, then he will. So it's a succinct way, I think, to sort of frame part of the argument of the book. And then the other big part, I think, is to note that uh, for Hart, that the notion of eternal conscious torment is disproportionate to any lifetime of crimes that one could achieve, even for someone like Hitler, such that God who inflicts fiery torment forever couldn't in any true sense be said to be called good or just. Does that make sense to sort of frame the parameters of the discussion? Yeah, I think I would go back to the first bit that you said. And I think that is, well, he even poses it that way. You know, if 
God is who we think he is, then this has got to be the result. But at the same time, I think what lies behind what Hart is maybe doing in this book at a really popular level is the idea of what have Christians taken as being sort of universal notions of who God is. So if we just wanted to talk about the doctrine of God, God is good, God is love, God is. So God in some way isn't a creature, but God is beyond creaturely being. And the way that's been worked out in East or West, I think a bit of what Hart's saying is actually then it is inevitable that we would understand the cross and creation and eternal destiny in reference to who God has revealed himself to be. I think it's tricky because it's easy to sort of begin at those more logical ways of thinking about this. Well, what could be the case? If God is good, then would he allow eternal torment or something like that? But I think even more than just that sort of those logical conundrums that we might approach, because that's the same way people like to approach the Odyssey. Well, if there's a good God, then how could there be evil? I think we might end up at a wrong, uh, with a wrong-headed discussion if that's what we think he is doing, that actually it's just to work out what is inevitable from who have Christians, especially in the early Eastern church, said God is. So, I mean, I actually, I, what I'm getting at is that when we talk about certainty, we could think that when Hart says that all should be saved, that he's speaking at a level of philosophic certainty. I don't actually think that's what he's aiming at. I don't think he's conflating philosophic certainty with maybe theological hopefulness but rather, what his aim is simply to say, this is who God has revealed himself to be. Now, what, are, what is inevitable from that? And that's uh -huh. an Eastern picture of theology that's found in Irenaeus, and it, it's found throughout the history of theology, but really gets screwed up, we might say, and Hart definitely says, with um, Western Augustinian notions that are taken to extremes. I think it, we've, we've leaped into a critique here rather than a summation. And the critique is that I can go through and agree at a philosophical level with his depiction of God as creator and agree that that, in fact, is a form of certainty that we might have at one level. But then to go through and talk about Scripture that, in fact, approaches God not primarily on the basis of creation, or at least and here I would follow Luther and the Protestant objection to scholasticism, that in fact what is taking place in scholasticism is a conflating then of our understanding of who God is in Christ with a philosophical apprehension, of, as Luther will talk about, that will understand God on the basis of glory or on the basis of his works in creation, or will understand God in and through the cross of Christ. And Luther's point, and of course later Barth's and Bonhoeffer's point, is that it is precisely the scholastic failure to put Christ at the center that led to the corruption of the Catholic Church, and in Barth and Bonhoeffer's view, led to the failure of theological liberalism in supporting national socialism in Nazi Germany. And not to say that all liberals, but that liberalism as a theological understanding. And so the departure I think that we need to make is to recognize, and I don't think Hart does this, in other words, he, I think, is in fact conflating 
two forms of certainty, that he, at one hand, talks specifically about the certainty that we can gain from God on the basis of creation, and he talks about that as a kind of absolute. He's speaking Hans Balthasar as his hopeful universalism, and he's saying that it, that's inadequate. And so I think what he's actually doing in the failure of thought that we're encountering, it's not explicit in the book, but it's implicit. And that is that he's using the word certainty or the idea of uh, arriving at an understanding through diff two different mediums and therefore can kind of extract himself from what would normally be a human involvement with history, with real-world evil, and the real work of the cross in confronting that evil, we can be sure we can have a certain hope in Christ, but that's a very different, you know, this is the Hebrews 11 kind of hope, in which we have hope on the basis of faith. And that's precisely, I think, what Balthazar is describing, that in his depiction of universalism, it is a hopeful universalism. What Hart would have us do is leap over history. And again, I'm not saying that the argument is inherently invalid. I'm just saying that the tone of the argument and the perspective of the argument of a philosophical argument, and by philosophical here, I just mean formal cause, as in creation ex nihilo, that that's a very different form of argument and a very different perspective than that taken from the perspective of a Christocentric understanding. I, I take issue with several. I don't think that's quite the right version of the story, meaning that what you get in Bart especially is a repudiation in both Calvin and Luther wanting to make the cross central over and against creation. What you get in some bad Catholic theology is wanting to make the glory of God or creation central over and against the cross. What I think Hart is doing rightly by going back to people like Gregory of Nazianzus, Maximus the Confessor, you might say, uh, he doesn't mention Irenaeus, but Irenaeus is doing the same thing, is to say, no, actually the way Christians early on thought about the relationship between creation and cross is that you need the incarnation especially regardless of whether or not there's a fall so that early humanity or creation is something that's going to be brought to fulfillment something that's going to develop and hearts bringing those two things together to say well the God who is the creator and sustainer of the world has then worked out his goal or the teleological end for all of creation a certain way that makes a type of universalism inevitable what I think is key to recognize what Hart doesn't do is to talk about what that looks like so his certainty isn't a, a sort of dumbed down certainty that, oh, well, all will be saved, none will be damned. He's not even working with those categories. When he, his certainty is that the God who has created all things and sustains all things, who is both the formal and final and so such and such on causes of all things, is going to bring his creation to its end. That's what, where his certainty is, and that's just a certainty based on faith that God is who he says he is both in cross and creation. I think it would be 
to misunderstand Hart's own point of view to sort of stick him first in these Western categories of theology that are a bit deformed, thinking about, oh, well, this is a cause and effect type of argument, or this is an argument to get God off the hook from <laughs> theodicy. I don't actually think that's what he's doing with this type of universalism. This is something that actually Bart recognizes as well, especially in the work of Calvin, is that you can't place creation or the cross over and against one or the other. In some way, Jesus is central in both the act of creation, and creation is still a central idea in what we have in the atonement through the cross. I'm going to agree with you, but maybe we need to pause a moment and define some terms. And that is that I think we're all basically agreeing, first of all, with universalism. Any, any objection? Yeah, yeah, in some sense, yeah. And that we're all agreeing that we can talk about certainty. Yes. Okay. Yep. And that in this understanding, what I would want to delineate is that the very basis of Christian faith that is, I think, recognized, especially maybe in a postmodern understanding, but maybe in a pre-modern understanding as well, is that there is the open recognition that Christian faith is in some way, by definition, foundational. That is, faith in Christ is what we mean, that Christ is the foundation upon yes. which our understanding is built. Everybody agree to that? Yeah, and I just want to add to that that I certainly think that that's the place the heart's coming from. In other words, that his philosophy is grounded in that sort of Christology and that sort of theology. And so whatever he wants to do as a part of his philosophical project, I think, is, is grounded in what you just said. That is, the in the historical, in the Christological, that Christ crucified as the Lord of history is the sort of determinative fact of all of creation. And so... I think, again, it's easy to float off from what Hart's I think, central thesis is, and that is, is that the God is eternal retribution proclaimed by so much of Christian tradition is not and cannot possibly be, he says, the God of self-outpouring love revealed in Christ. That's right. I do think, so, that, that's, I do yeah. think that that's that's key to his position. That's right. And I think that where the sticky wicket is behind this and why I think there's going to be a lot of misunderstanding over this book is most of his audience— conceives of the cross or when they hear the word Christocentric in some way thinks that the cross is main or maybe only point was to get rid of sin and death. But in an ancient Christian understanding, the cross and incarnation, while they do that, are really the fulfillment of creation itself. I think we cannot go with Luther. <laughs> I'm just going to say, I mean, as Hart says, Luther should have been a shoemaker and, you know, Calvin was an idiot. So I, I don't, well, I let's, don't think let's we Let's not can... talk about Luther. <laughs> let's talk about the Apostle Paul. I know Christ and him crucified, and that is central to a Pauline understanding. Exactly, yes. As a fulfillment of creation. I'm afraid that you're conflating yourself two ideas here. While one can acknowledge that Christ is the fulfillment of creation, I think you would be hard put to explain how the violent death of the Son of God is accomplishing creation. So run that down for us. Well, what I mean is, let's let, it's obviously inclusive of destroying sin and death, but let's not allow finite causes or even something that is so banal as evil to dictate 
why Christ is God come into the world to us. And that's actually what lays behind Hart's entire project in the book, is simply to say that no human action is going to change the fact that God is ultimately love. So what you have in Christ is an overcoming of these false things. I mean, this is according to your, your own theological view, that what you get with sin and death and even the horrific violence that humans are capable of doing is still either simply finite actions or a tapping into some, you know, a nothingness. That is no way going to ever be able to exhaust the meaning of Christ's incarnation or resurrection. Right. And, and in I, some way, it's always really fulfillment of creation. And it's a, it's a, in a sense, a truth telling. Like, this is the way the world really is. This is who God really is a God of love, a God of life, a God for whom death can hold no sway, a God from whom horrific violence does not change. Yeah, I think that we're in agreement that the yeah, in incarnation absolutely. can be a fulfillment of creation and that, that one can have that understanding that the overcoming of sin and death is not exhausted in the work of Christ. On the other but hand... But it's, it's, it's relevatory too, right? In other words, like it's revealing, I think it's the key to Hart's argument that whatever else is happening on the cross, it's revealing an understanding of God as love that's just Absolutely. incommensurate yeah. with but it's incommensurate with any notion that God then would be, and I, I'm just reminding this, I just don't want to flow too far away from the thesis of the book, that, that that's incommensurate with a God who would eternally, right. consciously torture. The, and so the, the flip side, the, the and to Paul's question, which is a good, real, I mean, I think that is a very good question. Well, what do you do then? with the, the violence that's put on display with the cross. Well, in some way, the flip side of revealing that God is ultimately life for whom death can hold no sway is to say that the world that we have constructed based on violence, based on needing to kill the other to, uh, in our you know, twisted and perverse minds to, to sustain our own life, is all really just a lie. That's a nothing. And so what necessitated the death of Christ was not creation, but human sinfulness. And necessity here is perhaps the wrong word. Well, no, I think you're, on, I think you're right. But just let that be a finite cause. So the death of Christ, why is it so cosmically important? It's not because some Pharisees did what they always do with somebody they disagree with, got rid of him. I'm just saying, give the cosmic importance of the death of Christ to the fact that God is revealing death has no power. The fact that they killed him is still operating on a very finite level, and that's Hart's point through the whole book. Our finite actions are incapable of having eternal or infinite effects. Again, maybe we need to point out that what we're talking about here is atonement theory, mm -hmm. and there would be two ways of understanding why Christ died. Did Christ die to rescue us from hell in terms of an eternal torturous existence, or did Christ primarily die to rescue us from sin and death? Sin and death, then, are not infinite categories, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the death of Christ is, in fact, an overcoming of human sinfulness, human evil, and death. Yeah, so, I mean, I know it's a little anticlimactic that the death of Christ is to free us from a nonsense or a lie or a false ideology, but I think that's what you yourself has, have explicated so well in other places. Well, what's at stake, though, I think, guys, is like, thanks for hard again, and this, and this is 
to me, I, this is what's so compelling to me about his argument is that what's at stake is the goodness of God over and against sin, over and against death, over and against what Hart is describing as like finite categories, limited sort of even Hitler sin or whatever, right? Is, 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 uh, in its magnitude is finite compared to God's infinite goodness and glory. And so I think that he wants to say that whatever that failure to be or that failure of human beings to, to be good, to be what they were created to be, it's not, it doesn't determine the outcome of the story. That for heart, the outcome, the outcome of the story is predicated upon God's being good and God being love and God being just and the God being able and willing to bring all things that he has created to a good end. And for me, the most compelling, I mean, for the listener, it's like, I, you know, I guess I've been studying this for about a year and in this, in, in, you know, a sort of universalism. And, and again, I'm not sure exactly where I fall on, on some of this stuff, but it's been, it's been a, a really cool journey. But part of that journey has been to examine some of the scripture. So again, I think it's easy to accuse hard of just saying, oh, well, you're just doing philosophy or you're just doing, but it's like, yeah, but part of the most compelling work that I think Hart does is to is in his Christology, but also in his exegesis of these key scriptures that once you see them, it's hard to unsee them. You know, the, in other words, like we all kind of know some of the, the Gehenna scriptures, and we can talk maybe in the podcast about what eternal means and the word Ionios and all those things, because the listener might not be, uh, you know, have, may, may not have studied those things, because I know I hadn't until I began to look into these things. But once you start to look at these passages, like in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that say things like, for just as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ, all will be given life. Or from 1 Timothy 2, uh, this is a good and acceptable thing before our Savior God, who intends all human beings to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Or 1 Timothy 4, we labor and struggle to this end because we've hoped in a living God who is the Savior of all human beings, especially of those who have faith. Or Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, giving salvation to all human beings. Or Second Peter 3, the Lord is not delaying what he's promised, as some reckon delay, but is patient towards you, intending for no one to perish, but for rather all to advance to a change of heart. First John 2, that he's the atonement for our sins, and not only for ours, but for those of the whole cosmos. And my personal favorite, is from uh, Romans 11:32, which I think again brings Paul's entire argument in Romans to a head or to a close before he breaks out in his doxology, where he says in Romans 11:32, "For God shut up everyone in disobedience or obstinacy, so that He might show mercy to everyone." And so again, I, I guess I just don't want to float off too much into kind of like an abstract conversation that kind of uh, doesn't really reckon with the force of some of these passages that militate against a traditional understandings that maybe sin really does have the last word in the story. I mean, if hell is an infinite place of conscious torment, then evil and sin really has been inscribed in a real way upon the human history in a final way. And so Hart's using the scriptures, he's using the tradition, he's using reason and I think theological argumentation to show why well, that notion of the eternal conscious torment militates against the scriptures themselves, militates against the sort of Christological implications in the life that you see of Jesus where he's not tormenting people, all right? So he wants to go at great lengths in his books to say that, well, whatever the fires of Gehenna must be, they must be remedial. 
They must be in some way restorative. That they can't just be purely retribution. And so I think that the one of the great favors that Hart is doing for us in this book is to say that God isn't evil. God is good. So whatever we do with our, our eschatology, whatever we do with heaven and hell and, and apocalypsis or the restoration of all things, what's at the forefront, what the most important part of the story is God's infinite goodness. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Matt. What I don't think he's doing, however, is using universalism as a theodicy. I think the way the book reads is not so much in a defense of God's goodness, but to say that God is good and then begs the question, well, then why do so many Christians have a faith that essentially makes God out to be less than he is? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I I actually think that's very important. Mine is a very small critique that we can come back to, but I think that Matt's depiction here is the compelling thing. And maybe, Matt, you can resolve for us then the tension then. You know, somebody like that in Scripture, there's obviously a tension. Philosophically, there is a tension. What Hart is saying is that we often come to this and we say, well, there is this tension between this set of Scriptures and another set of Scriptures which depict a, a judgment, a casting out, an exclusion. You know, usually what people would say, well, yeah, we got these two contradictory scriptures and there's no resolution. Yeah, well, that's an extremely difficult (laughs) question, but let me give it a, let me give it a whirl. For me, there's all sorts of uh, attention to the scriptures that I think in some way, I don't know what to do with. I mean, we've talked to the, you know, about this at length. It's like, obviously passages in the Old Testament that seem to militate against uh, the God that's revealed in Christ in ways that are, for me at least, like really uncomfortable and difficult to to reconcile. Maybe in some ways they're perhaps irreconcilable. I I guess I'm not sure. But what I would want to say is is that whatever interpretation that we want to go with, to me, it would need to be an interpretation that's worthy of the glory of Christ. I guess I wouldn't presume to want to work out all the different tensions, but I guess if what you're meaning is, is, well, what about those passages that seem to talk about Jesus saying, well, fear the one who can destroy both the body and the the soul in Gehenna, which to me would sound like something like annihilation. And there's bunches and bunches of passages in the Old Testament, of course, that sound like the destruction of the wicked and sort of annihilationist. And again, I guess I'm not going to presume to be able to explain those passages away. But what I would want to do, though, is to take a look with fresh eyes at some of those New Testament passages that really do seem to be saying that God is reconciling all things to himself. Again, we could just go through all the different passages and just say, well, we may want to reread some of our understanding of some of those more obscure, often metaphorical passages, you know, that Jesus is uh, describing the Gehenna. Well, that right there is already a metaphor, but in terms of a furnace or in terms of a prison or, or whatever else, in light of some of these passages that seem to talk about God's good purposes to save all of his creation. And so I don't know if what that looks like is to say that whatever the flames of Gehenna are, they are meant to be a purging fire. My understanding of who God is is that his justice is always redemptive, that it really is remedial, that it's that God really is a father and a savior and that he's good and that he's light and in him there's no darkness whatsoever, but that he's also a consuming fire. And that I think that part of what Hart is using the fathers and others in in his own theology to say is that like the burning bush, that what's happening with all of creation is is that it will be transfigured like the bush, that it will be consumed by God's fire but not destroyed, and that all 
creation will eventually be aflame with the love of God and that the consuming fire that God is really will consume all that which is contrary to his goodness. So evil and sin and death and all those things really will be vanquished. In light of that sort of overarching narrative of, I think, the, of the whole Bible, I think then we should probably look back into those passages, both old and new and in the Gospels, and re-examine them and say, okay, well, what must Jesus mean then? What's being destroyed? Is it the false sort of shadow ego? Is it the false self that's being destroyed? I, maybe it's both. I don't know. Is there a way that, that God is both annihilating the wicked uh, yeah. and, you know, saving uh, saving all of creation? Like, maybe that could be as well. But, again, the, the central point, I think, in Hart's book is, is, yeah, but if eternal conscious torment is the other option, then in some way God is made to be unjust. And, and maybe even, well, again, what I started the podcast saying, and that is, is that, if God desires for all human beings to be saved, which the scripture is clear that he is, and then if he's able to bring it to pass, which as Christians we believe that we would at least think that in some way God is able to do that which he desires, and Hart goes at great length in his book to talk about free will, and he discusses all those different things, then as Christians that maybe we should take a look at those passages and say, well, it appears as though God desires that all people would be saved, that God is able certainly to save, that that Jesus has atoned for the sins of, of the world. Can I uh, interject here? I want to agree with everything you've said, Matt. But again, I think we have to, as we describe these two things, the work of Christ on the cross and in history, and the future purging fires, we've passed from one category to another. And I'm not saying that's illegitimate or that that's inherently problematic, but I think we do need to say that whatever we are going to describe those future fires as being, either purging or punishing or whatever, we're still dealing in metaphor. That's fine. That's all we got. But when we're dealing with the cross of Christ, we're not dealing in metaphor. But at least in part, we can apprehend how it is that God is overcoming evil in Christ historically on the cross. And that in our baptism, indeed, we apprehend, we understand that this dying to the self is a real-world shift, both you know, in terms of our yeah. socio-cultural orientation and in terms of our personal orientation. And so we can talk legitimately about both things, but I think that it is a two very different conversations. And I think the weight of our understanding should not be put upon that future incomprehensible purging and justice, which in fact I do believe in, it is just that that belief and that understanding is of a very different order of understanding than I think should be what should be central, and that is the cross of Christ and a real overcoming of evil. So I'm afraid that what we may end up doing is that if we do not delineate these two things and say we've passed from talking about the known work of Christ in the New Testament to an unknown future category, that the weight of our understanding will shift very much like it does in notions of infernalism. In other words, this is the great problem, I think, 
in belief and eternal torturous existence, that it so weights our theology towards future things that it in some way empties out the meaning of real world overcoming of evil that becomes a form of Gnosticism. I'm not saying that this understanding necessarily does this. I'm just saying that the delineation has to take place and we have to understand that we are primarily geared toward understanding the cross of Christ and these other categories then, while important, are of a different order of understanding. Okay, so yeah, I like, I like that you were using the word understanding there rather than a different category of existence. I think that critique applies more so to the type of universalist understandings that's come out of liberal Protestantism. Because in the West, we tend to think very much of this life and whatever happens to us next, especially those of us who are presumably saved, is then being full presence of God almost as a static thing. I don't think, however, that's how the East views salvation. And this is what I was trying to get at before. And I think, Matt, actually, this is key to coming back to your point. Uh, I think Hart has presented all of this information in sort of the negative. But well, we can't believe in infernalist hell because that's a really easy way to engage with the people that are going to read this book. Um, he actually jokes as he's talking about the book uh, that he has contributed to ecumenism more than anybody else because now he has finally given Catholics and Protestants something to rally around and be for and against. They're definitely against universalism and for eternal damnation. So I think it makes sense just from, you know, who he's writing to from a rhetorical perspective, why he writes in the way he does. But I think that there's more to Hart's theology than that. And that's that deification or divinization is the link that brings together whatever is coming next and then how we are integrated into the life of Christ through the Holy Spirit in this life, such that, you know, when we die, it's not just, oh, poof, we're just like God in his presence. Uh, Irenaeus has this beautiful metaphor of the two hands of God, one being uh, the Son of God's mission into the world through the incarnation, his death and resurrection, the other hand of God being the Holy Spirit's mission into the world of uniting us with Christ's death and uniting us to God eternally, that those two works actually are works that are eternal. They're not static. They don't end. They're ongoing works that we are included into. And because we never cease to be finite creatures in the face of God, even in eternity, in us, that work looks like growth. So that would be how I would link, in any case, the reality of whatever it is to come and the reality of the cross that we experience now. Now, of course, there are maybe even bigger differences than there are similarities between those two things. So I think your critique's very warranted, Paul, but I think that is the connection that has to be stated up front. Yeah, I like that. And I think that, yeah, given the idea of a theosis, there is a continuity that we can we can project. Okay, I, I was just saying that I, I guess the other motif that I think that Hart wants to bring uh, to the forefront, especially using those Eastern Fathers, uh, really is the narrative of the victory of God. 
Okay, mm-hmm. and, and he uses says, well, in the early church, you know, First Corinthians 15 was sort of the the chapter, was the most important chapter to these ancient things. Which, of course, there in, in the end of chapter 15 says in verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's after the great resurrection chapter. And I guess I just bring that up to say that to me, what's more primary in the story than sin, death, evil? human, even sort of, you know, human being suffering, all these free will, we're not free, you know, all these different things, is the story of God as the victor, God as the mm-hmm. savior, God as, you know, and so, in, in other words, it's like, well, to maybe say, well, you know, yeah, but what's more important, this time now or that time in the future or this world or that world or, or whatever, it's like, I think that that's a valid thing to talk about, but I think that what's even more primary than that, though, at least for heart, is the narrative, is the story of God as the Savior uh, and victor. Yeah, the, in some way, God's design for creation is going to overcome any obstacle, real or perceived. And well, and I, and I just want to add to that, because what we perceive in this world is that that's not true, right? Does it, like, I don't know, when I look around and I go, man, is, is God's victory a real thing? It's like, well, I can see it in my own life to a degree. I can see it in the lives of some of the guys that we work with uh, at the Christian drug rehab where I work. And it's like, man, you can see God's victory sort of working its way out in some ways, but in other ways you can't. And I guess I'm just saying, Paul, that I guess isn't that part of the hope of this, for lack of a better word, the, the other world or the future or whatever really is. That the, that the victory of God is certain. It might not be certain now. It certainly doesn't seem to be. It's by faith. It's by hope. But that for Paul, over and over and again in his writings, he seems to be sort of encouraging us into the full knowledge, you know, of mm-hmm. faith. In other words, it's a, it's a real knowledge. It's a full knowledge. It's a, I mean, I was thinking the other day that Jesus says, you know, from the cross, which, by the way, I think is germane to our discussion on universal salvation, you know, from the cross, he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Presumably, I guess what Jesus means is that because if they did know what they were doing, they would be doing the good. They wouldn't be doing the evil. They would be doing the good. If they truly understood and knew what they were doing, it would be the good. But seeing how they don't, they're crucifying the Son of God. All that to say that, to me, it's like, I, I guess that isn't part of the faith a hope in the last thing. The way that Hart's describing this, is he's saying this is a brief sojourn. If you're lucky, you get 70 years to get it right, to get God figured out, to get your own repentance, to get your own affairs in order. Uh, people are born into these terrible contingencies where there's mental illness or there's abuse or there's all these terrible existential things that really do figure in to how you as a person end up and maybe even into your destiny. It's like that future kingdom or that future victory of God, that's why I wanted to bring that up is because if we, by faith, bring that those last things into the present, it really is an important category, right? And like the future, the kingdom of God, the, in all of its fullness and fulfillment, the victory of God, is there a bigger part of the Christian story? That's great, Matt, because you also alluded to the other things that Hart brings up. And this is where I think his thesis is bigger than just infernalism is wrong, is he's also saying any theology that would take the human being to be autonomous is wrong. Any theology that would think that human beings have the power or the volition to decide their eternal destiny is wrong, that none of these things are Christian. And it is just the same old sin. We take ourselves to have this type of willpower 
that is not accorded to finite beings. There are parts that he talks about the idea of makes sense of Paul's depiction of all being found Mm -hmm. in the first Adam. That is actually a true depiction of the corporate nature of what it means to be human. We're all damned together and we'll all be saved together seems to be the depiction of Paul in several places, but particularly in Romans 5, and I think also in Romans 9 to 11. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it's wonderful how Hart brings out, I think, that, and I didn't know this before I read, but that Gregory of Nyssa does this really cool thing with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and that is, I, I, correct me if I got this wrong, um, you guys, but I think that in Genesis 1, you have the creation of humanity as such, right? And then in Genesis 2, you have Adam and Eve as sort of individuals. And that what Gregory, I think, is going to say is that part of what the incarnation means, that God becomes a human being, that humanity is as such is saved. Because God has become a human being. Yeah, yeah, this is... That, that humanity as right. such, you know, is saved. I mean, that's the idea of recapitulation that's found in Irenaeus, but also is, again, goes back to Romans chapter 5. Yeah, I I like that. Also, I think a a great value of the book, this discussion, but also then his undoing of notions of free will that are also then built upon a kind of individualistic identity and will. Actually, I was hoping that John, and I think John might be able to do a better job on clarifying some of the language of informal cause and and stuff like that. But I guess just for me in, in real simple terms is that, again, it goes back to the scriptures where Jesus says that unless the Son sets you free, where if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And that we would imagine that, that what makes us free is our ability to choose. I think the heart does a really good job. He uses Maximus the Confessor to talk mm-hmm. about our natural will, right? And so our natural will is that which is geared towards the good or the rational or the truth. It's the, it's the goodness of creation that we're just born with. It's the, it's the will that Jesus had, right, which is the natural will. And then we have what Maximus the Confessor calls the gnomic will, which is the deliberative will where we can choose this or choose that. And that for Maximus, and I think this just makes good sense, is that, well, it's not that sort of will that makes us free, our ability to choose. Should I turn my face away from God or should I continue following after God? It's like, well, no, that's precisely what, that's the type of will that we're enslaved to or just the ability, you know, I mean, that's what I want to be saved from. Right, like I don't want to even. I don't even want to be able to. I don't want to even be able to choose. All right, to to turn away from God because that the nomic will in Maximus's uh, phrase is a product of sin already, and it's precisely that. And again, this is a powerful Christological argument. He's saying, well, what Christian would say that Christ wasn't free? I mean, Christ was the most free person who's ever lived, and precisely because he didn't possess that sort of nomic will that would deliberate between the choosing of good and evil that we all yeah, the, rest of us yeah have. you have to think about that as being a defect and i okay. mean this is paul uh well paul so paul axton and i were talking about this last week it saint paul says you know in sort of a pithy way well to be free from righteousness <laughs> it's to have that nomic will it's essentially That's to be right. enslaved yeah. to uh yeah, uh, and, and, and then vice versa. And so addiction, I think addiction is like a really great metaphor for this, right? It's like, well, okay, is an addict 
free in really any sense. It's like, well, you know, he gets up out of bed and he's got to go get high. I mean, it's like you got to go get high just to not get sick. I guess someone could say, well, no, that's human freedom. And it's like, well, no, but actually I think the Bible talks about that as just human bondage and slavery, that which Christ has come to set us free from and save us from. And so I guess the point in all that is, is that we would imagine that, especially in our sort of modern American 21st century individualistic context or whatever, that what freedom is, is that, well, I can make myself whatever I want to make myself. Well, heart goes to great lengths to say that, no, you can actually only be free by theosis, by joining yourself with God, with by joining yourself to the good, by joining yourself to the truth. Because Jesus, as the human par excellence, the truly human one, he shows us how to be human precisely in his, in and through his perfect unity with the Father that he's free. Yeah, I want to play with something. You said this so well. We tend to think that freedom is I can make myself who I want to make myself. And I think that act- that is the lie of sin and death. That's, right. that's what you see in the garden. That's what you see people trying to do ever, ever since. And that's exactly what I think Hart, St. Paul, Jesus is saying. Well, no, actually, um, you can't. Because what we would imagine is that deliberative freedom is the vehicle in and through which we make ourselves what we would wish to be. Now, just think about that logically for a moment. So that we, we tend to believe that the finite things we choose as good for ourselves are going to work for us as a final eternal end. Well, you see why that's hollow immediately. And so that's all we mean by, you know, are humans free? And this is the problem with the Reformation, is they've just conflated these categories so that they're starting to believe that either you have to agree with some kind of a predestinarian theology that means you really don't even have those deliberative choices at all. God is just going to damn some and save some, and there is no freedom of the will, period. Or you get some kind of middle version that gets into knowing how God thinks. And all of those things, you know, I don't know, the Catholic Church was really good about calling it heresy when Calvin did it, but they they were really, they missed the boat when Domingo Banez and you had Molina doing the same things. They didn't decide assertively that those also are heresies it's all the same thing i think the biblical picture is really that no matter of choosing you know one finite good over another is ever going to bring you to any eternal end or uh, final end it's not your final cause it's not your telos that's god we're not capable as human beings of setting a finite end for ourselves and to make that super practical it's just to say when you wake up in the morning you might think, well, I'm going to be a good person today, but then, uh, you know, you meet another human being in 10 minutes and you realize how quickly you have no control <laughs> for fulfilling that end. And it's just as simple as that. So, yeah, we have freedom to make those kind of choices. The, the lie is to think that that actually amounts to something. What true freedom then is to align our, our gnomic wills, or you could even say it's the reduction or the annihilation of our gnomic wills in Christ so that what we choose is consistently the good, and that's the work of grace within us. That's, you know, deification or theosis. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, 
want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.